0: G'day and welcome to Runners Radio. I am your host, Rick Mirabella. This is an interview we did with Craig Black, the assistant coach at Collingwood and the Stingrays, Dandenong Stingrays Premiership Coach. We did this interview a few weeks ago, um, pre the COVID-19 outbreak and obviously the uh, lockdown that's occurred all over the world since then. So um, it's a cracking interview and I think you'll to get a lot out of it. Over the next few weeks on this podcast, we'll be doing a lot of... A lot of um, podcast through zoom now uh, we've got a couple of really good guests coming up lee troop being the next one who is a champion australian distance runner um a 209 marathoner so that's going to be a cracker lee lives in colorado so i look forward to bringing that one to you and of course as always we are brought to you by runners.com uh, we are your running and training fitness coach anytime anywhere and we have just transferred over to a new platform which is so important in this current climate where it is just um, so so well structured for you guys. Doesn't matter what you want to train for, running, fitness, weight loss, and you can do it all from the comforts of your home, or put us in your ears or on your TV and just go for it. So have a look at that, runners. auwnez.com. They bring us. They bring us now, Craig Black. Um, today, look on the coach's corner. A bit of a deep dive as well. Coming off Craig Bustamaturum, which was quite an intense and fantastic two-part series i've got an old mate of mine who has done more in footy than most of us have ever done and he's only halfway through i'd imagine he's a super coach he's the only premiership coach of the danny long stingrays he's now at the collingwood football club but before that he's a really really super elite playing career i welcome craig black Uh, thanks rick not a, not a bad intro, mate. Oh, yeah, right. I, maybe a bit too much, no, no, not even close, mate. Um, Thanks for coming down. So, Blackie's come down from Collingwood today. So, for those listeners overseas, uh, Blackie is in the elite, the elite of the elite, professional Australian rules football coaching now. Um, and it all began back in Rosebud in Bayside, Melbourne, uh, 40 odd years ago now, 41 years ago now. But Blackie's always been involved in footy at the elite level and cricket. He's a sensational cricketer as well. Also ran a couple of marathons, so he's a high achiever in everything in life, really. But I wanted to get him on. Obviously, the coach's corner, he's got a lot of nuggets of wisdom to offer for you athletes out there. And even if you are an endurance athlete, you you can take a lot away from this man in front of me this morning. But um, more importantly, just the journey, and and there's a lot of adversity in in Blackie's sporting career, Um, and things don't always go to plan um, in life. And the way Blackie has continue just to overcome and you never see the bloke not smiling either so when we start to delve into his story just try to picture just one of the best blokes you'll ever meet with a massive smile on his face going through some of this real tough stuff that um a lot of other people might have just uh gone and hidden a corner and and never really come out so i'll preface your story with that great man but we're not going to go into the collingwood and afl and stingrays and all the glory right yet take us right back to the beginning a young craig black and growing up in rosebud if that's am yeah, i right there Yeah, went to take went us to, take us the last their first 10 years of your life
1: yeah i went to Drumana primary school and then uh into Drumana secondary college and uh played footy at a, at a younger age the first sort of three or four years at Tanai park which uh those that, yeah those that don't know uh it's sort of was a bit of a housing commission area around mornington um i was living in germana uh, my uncle was coaching there so i uh I went down there, and that's what probably my love of sport really started. I had a, I had a coach back then, um, Mick Smeaton, who uh, was um, he would drive down to Dramana and pick me up in his uh, in his work van, and just to get me at training. And Mum would come up after after work from Rosebud and pick me up. So that was the first sort of three or four years where I really met some really great mates. That are still lifelong friends now. so um, 30 years later just um, we all had a common goal is enjoying sport at a young age I so, uh, played there and then once I sort of got the secondary college um, you know your mates around school sort of start getting in your ear so I went and played at Rosebud uh, where Rosebud sort of become my junior club and uh, with some of my really close friends um, yeah played footy there and was lucky enough to to play some uh, in a couple of grand finals down there with some some really good lifelong friends.
0: It's interesting you say about the Tanai experience and, and the whole mission of having to get there and, and do the hard stuff from a young age and it probably no doubt moulded you as a human early. Like You certainly weren't fed on a silver spoon from the outset, having to travel just to get the footy training and make sure you got there after school, getting picked up and those kind of things. So is that Baza Smeaton's old man? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. Very so beautiful family. Butt. Yeah, Fantastic. So tell us about Rosebud Footy Club and then... Um, We'll get to the representative footy over the next few minutes but you always when did you say i want to become an afl footballer and there's nothing else i
1: want to do in life um oh, from the day i can remember i was told to barrack for carlton and i, I loved footy I, I still remember getting taken to the 1986 grand final so i was like seven years old and it was carlton v hawthorne um and carlton lost and then the following year uh, carlton won but i wasn't fortunate enough to go to that one so from that day i um, I just always want to, to play footy, uh, or any sport really, and I was just I just had the attitude I just I don't know if it's a good one or a bad one. But I just always wanted to be good at everything I tried to do, and lucky enough I was fortunate enough to be sort of talented as a, as a young as a young kid in, in sort of cricket or or footy. But I think when you got a little bit of success, you just wanted a little bit more. Um, so I don't know. Thinking back, I don't know. If it was just natural talent back then or, or work rate I, I think probably at a young age it's just natural talent um and so then when you start getting to that 14 um and 14 years age you sort of have to sort of make a chan- uh, you know a decision that uh, do i want to be good at this sport and you know schooling i was i was okay at school but i reckon i went to school to socialize with mates so i, I always thought i wanted to be you know i wanted to be an afl footballer or a, be involved in professional sport. I think like you touched on earlier, Rick, with you know, just, I think, looking back now that I've got kids uh, myself that, um, like my mum that had me at age 17 and was married and divorced with two kids by the time she was 21, um, that was working a couple of jobs just so I could get footy boots, and not that we didn't go without, and probably you take it for granted as a kid, and I I definitely look back now and think how much mum did for me to, to be able to have that opportunity to to go to football and um, and probably that's where probably the, the work ethic came in, just to want to be good. Because if people like mum um, and the family put themselves out there consistently to to help me, then I, I need to reward them as well. So yeah, that's how um, that's where I thought.
0: Mate, yeah, it's, it's look. Not many of us are a like, guy. I, I had a rough idea about that about that growing up but look it's little things like that that we probably take for granted sometimes and, and like you said you're a father of three now yep. and you've got the beautiful wife Casey we'll talk about that stuff later but you you want to give your kids everything you can 100% and your mum obviously did that for you and but those little things that you I think a lot of people today would have just um, possibly said oh, I'll talk to you like, I'll just stay home and I'll go play somewhere closer or I'll just I'll play something easier and, and not taking the easy route, which is something you've never done. You've never taken the easy route. And I think you're underrating yourself of work rate as well, knowing you. I, I, don't, I didn't know you was a teenager, but I've got no doubt those 13, 14, 15 year old blackie would have uh, been hell bent on working harder than anybody else as well, even though the talent definitely came. 15, 16, when did the rep footy start? So we we start getting, what's the odd interleague and all that, that old stuff. So 13, 14, you start playing interleague. When did the the TAC Cup came in 1992? So you, there was the Stingray Pathway was already there. When did all that start to take take uh, hold of you, mate?
1: Yeah, I think like as a 14 year old played, you know, interleague footy, and um, and then at 15 I was lucky enough to be selected in the under 15s Victorian team. So back then there was only um, there was only one team. So um, now they have the Country Metro at 16s, but back then it was just one team in the 15. So I was selected in that and um, I travelled to Adelaide with. Um, Looking back now, they had like, you know, Lance Whitnall, um, you know, Heath Black, there were some really good players uh, that played in that. So, um, so from there, the next, the next year, I was lucky enough to get invited down to the Dan Long Stingrays as a 16-year-old to do preseason. Uh, so I did the pre-season as a 16-year-old and then managed to lucky enough to make the make the under 18 team as a 16-year-old and play every game in my first year, um, which was a bottom bottom major. And then from there, um, you know, with some likes of some older boys, there was like, uh, you know, Darren Hume, uh, Luke Peters, Chad Morrison, um, that were sort of top age players, that were really good, uh, sort of senior figures around the club. And then, you know, so I stayed in that pathway for the next three years. So as a seventeen year old at the Stingrays, I was I was named vice captain, um, but then got injured. Sort of really didn't have injuries as a young age. Um, I sort of I got kicked picking up a ball and broke uh, broke my finger and sort of with, you're thinking with a finger I missed 11 weeks having to have surgery on a finger so that was the first real setback I got and it was right in the middle of uh, in the season so I remember trying to get back to play the last game of the year and we had to get the okay from the surgeon. The surgeon was uh, away in New Zealand so we, uh, I think we made a couple of phony phone calls and my mum was lucky enough to say yeah, yeah, the surgeon said it's okay to play so Said um, told the Stingrays to play the last game of the year and then um, had an 18th year, I was, I was captain of the Stingrays um, so lucky enough to make the uh, the Victorian, oh, Metro back then the Metro team uh, with some, oh, some fine players that went on and played a lot of AFL footy so in our team um, and even at the Stingrays we, we made it was the first grand final, 97 that the Stingrays had made so it was a really big achievement uh, for our program and we, there was some really good players in that team and we really looked at it as we're representing just not only ourselves but the whole region and the players that, uh, that we'd played junior footy with that weren't lucky enough to make the stingrays. Um, so we, we really made a pact to try and represent them. Um, didn't go our way on the day. Uh, a guy called Adam Goods who kicked six goals against us on grand final days. Uh, he was a 17-year-old who ended up getting drafted and winning two Brownlow medals and playing 300-plus AFL games. So that, uh, that was a bit of a roadblock for us.
0: I remember that day very well. Um, a few years younger, but I do remember that very well. Goodsy dominated, but for the listeners that aren't in Victoria and aren't aren't footy, um, aren't across the AFL, this this is the best system in the in the nation. So, the TSE Cup and now the NAB League is is the 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 only comp you need to be in under 18 competition that is the greatest pathway there is to Australian rules professional football so um, I think on average 90 something percent of draftees come out of the NABLA maybe 85 percent of draftees Blackie will know their stats better than me so it's it's elite it's the elite of the elite um, 16, 17, 18 year old comp so he's touched on that very quickly, but he's the captain of the Dandenong Stingrays in an era where they were elite and young kids like me looked up to every one of that list. And that list included blokes like Trav Johnson, all these are good mates of Blackie's, but Trav Johnson who went number one in the draft that year, Trent Crowe went number three. three, Chris Massey went number six. There was other blokes, Andrew Williams and the like, but Blackie was also drafted that night. Now take me through this because this is massive. Um, Year 12, Do you still at school?
1: I'd finished school, so I was in one of those lucky ones that could finish school uh, as a 17-year-old. Yep. I was yep. a young starter.
0: Yep. So school, you so were in the I workforce. Was
1: traineeship. So, Beautiful.
0: Yeah. And you, tell me about the week leading up. I know it's very different now. It's a two-day yep. extravaganza, the draft these days. But tell us, it was still, for us footy nerds, the draft was still big in the mid-90s. So tell us about the 1997 draft. Yeah,
1: it was, it was televised. I think it was on Channel 7 on a Friday, so... Um, so if we lead back um, a month or so, before, they still have the AFL draft combine. So where players went to that. So uh, so I went to that as the combine. Uh, I, I had a sore knee through the grand final, so I wasn't able to participate in a lot of the uh, the activities that day. But one thing you do do is you get interviewed by a lot of clubs. Um, so every club has has oh, maybe two, three, four, even up to five recruiters there, and they're um, they're asking you various questions. So and. As a, as a young 17, 18-year-old, you're probably thinking, "Oh, this club likes me; that club doesn't." Um, so I went through and spoke to a numerous amount of clubs in that day, and you're going, "Oh, is there a possibility I could be moving to WA or Queensland or, or New South Wales to, to follow my dream?" And I remember um, being a Carlton supporter. Um, Carlton didn't interview me that, that at the combine. Um, during the year that year, I'd played three games in their reserves and played three games at Melbourne. Because uh, you're able to do that in your uh, top age year at, at the TAC back then, um, so yeah, come come draft week, a um, couple of clubs sort of speak to you and just some final uh, checks, I guess, and wish you good luck. And um, I, don't know if I should say it, but I remember uh, as a 17 year old back then, everyone used to be able to get draft, you could every club could draft one 17 year old, uh, and the feedback I was sort of getting from the Stingrays that I'd probably be one of those, um, and spoke to a couple of clubs even the night before the draft. Uh, and as a 17-year-old, I didn't get drafted. So there was a little bit of setback there, but I knew what my main year was the following year. So my 18th year was really nervous. Um, I, um, I went and watched the draft. I can, without a word of a lie, with about half a dozen mates, close mates, I went to the Germana pub, and uh, we watched it on the TV there, and um, I saw um, one minute, uh, my picture was up on the TV. I was talking to someone, and they went to an ad. And everyone's like, wow, well, you got drafted then. I honestly, for probably two minutes, had no idea where I'd been drafted to. So um, so we're sort of waiting for the TV to come back on and uh, yeah, found it was Carlton, who I, um, as a lifelong Carlton supporter and my whole family back for Carlton. And um, within, within 20 minutes, I had the, uh, the coach and the recruiter on the phone, um, then ringing mum and then within, it was a Friday, and then like the next day or the day after, um, the, the recruiters were down at my house, just speaking with mum and myself, telling us this is what's happened. And they said, uh, I still remember them saying, go out and enjoy yourself for the weekend. We'll see you at training Monday. So being drafted at probably, you know, 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock on a, um, on a Friday afternoon and then rocking up to training. Uh, I remember going to my bedroom and um, actually taking down a couple of posters, I still had and Carlton posters on the walls. I thought, oh. Bit like, weird. Yeah, a bit weird. <laughs> I can't rock up the training with uh, those posters. So yeah, to one day being a supporter to the next day, uh, running around with some of your idols um, was very surreal, uh, but once you're there, you're just part of it. Yeah. Um, yeah, it, was, it was still took a took a little bit of time to sort of Go- sink
0: in. Yeah, I just got goosebumps again, and, and all. I think all sports sports nerds, but a lot of us, are, are footy nerds especially. Um, that's pretty cool. But you're right. Once you're in the system, which you have been, in, not you haven't been out of the system now for for 20, 21 years or so. You're. Um, You're in it, and you're in it, and there's no. You're certainly not. um, You're not fanboying anymore. You're straight, straight in the game, and trying to be the best footballer you can be. Um, That draft year, I'm interested in that because obviously different times, no smartphones, and all that, so no one could tell you, and you couldn't look at. There's no bloody phantom drafts all over Facebook and that kind of stuff. But I'm interested in your your mindset in that year. Um, You were captain of of an elite TSC Cup, but you also had a dream to play AFL. You were very we internally week to week confident of getting drafted because we've got a lot of runners footballers that might have got drafted as rookies and and as mature age you were one of these 17 18 year old kids who was vic rep captain all these things what's the average saturday this is uh, we haven't had a player of your ilk on here every saturday at tsc cup how do you put that aside and do the greater good and just to play the team game? And what a look, it's a question that's got to be um, asked.
1: Yeah, I think it, it is a difficult one. Mm. Like, I think you said before, like, not trying to sound big head or anything, but at a young age, you thought that you were more likely to get drafted than not. Um, but I had the, I really had an attitude of wanting to be better. Um, like, I can remember getting back from school camp in year 11, year 12, being away for all week and getting home on a Friday and going for a run, like just going for a five, six K run, because I thought that if, some people I was going to play against had done more than me during the week. So um, I really prided myself on my work ethic at that age. Once I got to 17, 18, I knew that what I wanted to do and how hard it would be. Like, I'd watch AFL games and you'd see the likes of Robert Harvey that were running machines. And I'm like, if I want to be, I could be, you know, playing that in two or three years. So I really had to challenge myself. And physically, I wasn't I wasn't a big person. I think um, when I went to the Stingrays, at, at a sixteen year old, I was sixty four kilos, and when I got drafted, I was like seventy three. Um, within my first pre season at Carlton, I, I got up to about seventy nine. Um, so, I, sort of fair bit, cool. in three years, I put on a fair bit of weight and that was a lot of gym stuff. Um, but I was able to maintain my running, um, and um, I think it was indication when I got drafted. We did, we used to do a time trial around the Princess Park. Um, and my first run there, I actually, I won. So as a draftee coming in, so that's when I know the work that I've done prior to um, being drafted was good enough at a, at a AFL pre-season yeah. level um, to be able to do that. So Spend a minute
0: on that. So you're coming in at the end of 97, November to December 97. You're coming in at the back end of a pretty, um, again, for the non-football listeners, Carlton was super at 95. They won 20 games, lost two. So you've still got the likes of Braddles and those kind of runners around. Kuta Fides was, was in his prime, all these kind of footballers. And over three point... What's what's Princess Park 3.2? Yeah, they yeah.
1: actually made us do two laps.
0: So 6.4... Do yeah. I love the old school. Don't you love the yeah. old school? This is 6.4K time trial, if you don't mind. Um, and Big Black Dog just says, I'll, I'll take you to all the school. There's an 18-year-old little whippet. Could have been on the first at Flemington. He just goes bang, bang. Tell me about some of your strengths on that 18-year-old i've mentioned all your plaudits as a youngster give me some of your game day strengths and and as an 18 year old pre all these crazy injuries that went on yeah. in your early 20s what were your, your biggest strengths as a footballer
1: um oh i think like my running I, I thought i probably didn't have to work on it as a young person but then because i made that decision i was pretty naturally fit but then when i worked at it, it become like i'd be able to run more and further than people playing against in games um i look probably might my, my my kicking was my strength kicking and running would have been my strength as a player um when you were a bit skinnier you sort of had to to be able to do that uh so that's where i probably and i sort of just had um i was really competitive as a kid um and i probably still am now if you ask um my wife and my kids and that sort of stuff probably at a different level but i actually really really wanted to succeed in everything i did so i was really competitive um so yeah that's that's probably that's a super answer
0: um you were elite by foot, but your competitiveness, I was hoping you were going to say that because um, you're not going to say it about yourself, but hardness and toughness would, would definitely be a big strength. And um, at 70, well, you said you got up to high 70s, and by the time I was probably watching you um, in the VFL, you were probably high 70s as well, but I, I wasn't, but your inside work um, was elite, elite inside, hard, uh, inside ball winner. And the ability to extract the footy was probably another strength. But the skills, on, and obviously once you got on the outside as well, was was super. So you can see all these strengths coming in. Tell me your first 12 months at Calton Footy Club. So you are in, and in 98, Carlton's the biggest club in the land. So um, listeners overseas, think Liverpool, think Chicago Bulls, uh, Blackie's playing at Carlton FC in the peak of its powers yeah, it was, and, and 98, 99, they were in finals. So they, were, they were right up there. Fraser Brown, one of my olders, a great man. Yeah. He's a good bloke.
1: The, um, oh, yeah, it was, it was challenging. Like, I think that was the one thing that I, that I looked back, look back at is you go from playing underage footy at under-18s against people your own age where you are really playing – you are playing for fun um, and to, to try and make the AFL level but then when you get drafted, you're playing against experienced people that you might be playing against a 27, 28 year old, you're 18, that, that's their livelihood. Like they've been on an AFL list for seven or eight years and the difference between them getting another contract and being able to pay the mortgage. So um, I probably, that's when I learned like another part of competitiveness, like they were doing it because they just wanted to, to succeed in life and to be able to pay their way. So probably first year, Realistically, I didn't think I was going to play much. Just back then, uh, there were a lot more bigger bodies, um, so I spent the year playing uh, playing in the reserves, uh, which was a fantastic grounding uh, to be able to do that. But then, yeah, that was one thing that first year really made me sit back and think, go, well, you're sort of playing serious football now. Uh, while it was still unbelievable fun representing a club that you barracked for, and um, and and. Your mates sort of rode your coattails with you as well. I like, had great support for some great mates that we'd come and watch every week. Um, so you, I sort of took that little bit where you're representing, I sort of stopped just representing myself um, to sort of re- representing my, my mates and sort of a bit in the community where where people at school, like you'd go back to school and people were proud that, oh, you know, Craig had played at Rosebud Junior Footy Club, he'd gone to Jamana Secondary College and that sort of stuff. So you sort of had a bit of not a bit of weight of expectations, but you, you had so many people wanting you to do well as well. Um, so yeah, so come that first year, um, well, it's disappointing not to play any senior games, um, but the reality was I was, I was still learning uh, and I thought I thought I did learn a lot of things. And uh, we just missed out, we missed out in the finals that year with a, you touched on before, with an older and experienced list. And then rolling into the next pre-season, I had a really good pre-season, um, started, that's the um, two th- um, 1999 season. Um, started off the year really well in the reserves. Uh, and then I think round, round one or two had uh, had probably my best game I'd had there. Um, I had a fair bit of footy. And then they said, Oh, look, you'll probably play this week. It was going to be a Carlton Collingwood game. And um, I think this might have been a Sunday. And uh, I remember the last training session, I rolled my ankle. And I'm like, I had. I, rang one of my best mates from Adelaide. He'd already booked the flyover. I said, mate, there's a good chance I'm gonna play. Um, and then I uh, hurt my ankle, missed a couple of weeks. And then, um, you know, then you just battled back, had a couple of injuries that year, sort of fractured a foot. Um, and, and Carlton had won a lot of footy that year and uh, ended up playing off in the 1999 grand final. So, um, so it was really um, it was sort of challenging at times when you know you had a two year contract um, the start. So we're lucky enough to get a two year contract straight up. Back then, they only give you one. Uh, nowadays, all draftees get two. Um, so you sort of had that. But then you're going into that second year, and while you're happy that yeah, your teammates and people you got drafted with are playing playing a lot of footy, you're sort of sitting back as well, thinking, geez, I've got to do something. And you sort of chase your tail a little bit, thinking, oh, I might be out of the system at, at age 21 when all you've wanted to do is uh, probably play and. AFL footy and then to be playing AFL footy for the club that you'd barracked for uh, was really sort of started and you probably start probably trying to do a little bit too much and then you get sort of you might just get a bit tight in the calves or something like that so you you, by trying to do a little bit more training you probably suffered a little bit Um, and then yeah Carlton played in the grand final that year, got beaten by North Melbourne Uh, within probably three or four days of that grand final everyone has player interviews and they they say, oh, look, we're um, Aaron Hamill goes to St Kilda. They said, look, we might see if we can throw you in a trade. And within four days of the grand final, I was no longer an AFL player. So, um, yeah, so you're sort of like, well, what am I going to do with, with my life from here? So I remember going to visit a mate in Adelaide, um, spoke a couple of clubs that rang to see if I was interested in going and doing a, a pre-season at some AFL clubs, just with no guarantee. Um, and I don't, I don't know why, but I um, I think from, from the age of, I could ever remember. I wanted to play AFL footy, so it was probably a bit of a, a bit of a setback. And, and really, it was probably the only the first time I'd really been had not made anything that I that I tried. So um, as a junior, I pretty much everything I tried I, I made, or um, or I was a captain or something like that. So I don't know if I took how I took it, and uh, I went back and played at Rosebud. So the next year, I went and played with mates. I so said, "I just want to love footy again." Uh, went back for the next two. Seasons. I was, one season I went back to, to Rosebud and played and I thought oh, I just had a real passion for footy again. Um, and I um, I thought I might go back and try again at VFL or call a couple of clubs. And uh, I just cut my shoulder in a final. So I had that shoulder reconstruction. So I thought, no, nah, nah, I need to spend another year of local just to get fit and, and do it all again. And halfway through that second year, I'd spoken to a, a couple of AFL clubs about maybe the possibility of getting picked up as like a 22 year old it sounds sounds so uh so young still at 22 well, now, now like, these days unfortunately
0: yeah. um just touching on that like blackie was in an era where um well, number one yeah 22 was was old back then unfortunately um it's not anymore with the rookie drafts and all these amazing things and and so many players getting drafted out of the vfl but um yeah and there the would have been cause to to think that possibly you you would your dream was over at 22 yeah, definitely. especially with the injuries you'd already had so the shoulder and now so take us through that second year at rosebud yeah. and how did the actual heavens are falling in right now in uh, melbourne as we as we record so hopefully tommy senior can uh, block this kind of stuff out take us through that second season at yeah rosebud.
1: Oh, mate, i was loving it again and um i was playing some good footy um and then come the end of the year um i'd spoken to south adelaide over in the SANFL. Um, so I made the decision to um, to go over and have another uh, crack at you know trying to prove myself in a in a really good competition uh, to get the opportunity to get drafted. So I went over there, uh, spent uh, the preseason, and then uh, t- sort of I, I still remember it was a straight day weekend. Um, something wasn't um, I just wasn't feeling the connection there, and um, made the decision to come home and went to the Frankston uh, Dolphins Footy Club. So vfl um where in hindsight it was only 20 minutes from home originally but um i think it was just that to get away yeah. um but then had a couple of people with me said so you got to get down here and play and um yeah i went down there and i like i spent the next five years of my life at the Franks and dolphins and and honestly some of the best times of my life um and i learned so much more about myself as like a 20 year old 22 year old playing footy back um i think my First year, I might have been 23, and I was like the third oldest player, yeah. um, with Big normie Clark and Johnny Giorgio being older than me. It's um, it's a funny
0: era because Blackie. I remember that era so well as a as the local footballer watching him, and um, he did. As a younger bloke, we thought like you were 23 because of your background. It was like you were 30, yeah. and you you were running around out there, and you were, you were a natural leader, and obviously always. Um, barking instructions and working your ass off around the ground. But you you did play a lot older as well. So 23 years of age, you got to uh, Dolphins. Yep. And a really good era for Dolphins, listeners. Um, this is the VFL, so the second best um, competition in the country of Australian rules football. So a lot of the people you might know from the runner system have come from this club or this, this, um, this competition. So Blackie absolutely dominated this competition. But again, this is where the adversity started. It's the injuries and the injuries. So you you touched over that, so we're not going to go too much into Carlton, but that selection, like injuries did curtail that selection, that certain one game that would have got turned into more. And then at Frankston Dolphins, when... Um, you're easily one of the best players in the league and in a couple of seasons in particular, Liston Trophy, which is the best and fairest The Brownlow of the VFL like would have beckoned. But again, more injuries. So take us through that four-year period, five-year playing yeah. career. You had some sensational characters like Johnny Hines and, and those kind of champion boys. Um, take us through that four-year period and just like the trials, the tribulations, the human beings.
1: Yeah, well, my first year there, I, um, we had a really good team. And then uh, I, oh, talking about the injuries, yeah, yeah it's, it brings back a lot of memories, and probably where I really probably grew as a person, and um, and probably, I know you'll touch on it later, but where the coaching aspect really came into it. Um, my I think my first season there, my third game, I um, I broke a collarbone, and. Um, the, they said, oh, we'll do it right and we'll pin it and we'll get you back within, like, four weeks if we put a pin in. And I'm like, yeah, I just want to play footy because I'd gone back there to give myself an opportunity of playing AFL footy. And my, my pre-season games, my first couple of games, I was going really well. And I'm like, oh, I can see that carrot of maybe playing AFL footy again. And um, so I said, yeah, pin it straight away. And then uh, I got infected. So a month after the operation, I had to go back in and have it cleaned out. And then a month again after that, um, infected again. So I ended up missing the whole year of footy with a broken collarbone um, and then um, one of my, my best coaches I, I, to this day and now my mentor Brett Lovett um, took the reins that my second year there um, Those that have heard of Brett he doesn't talk a lot but he's, he's he was absolutely wonderful I think he came the right time where I was in my life to learn uh, and to challenge me um, so he came in and I played the, the whole next year and then um, Towards the end of that season, I um, I dislocated another shoulder, my opposite shoulder than I'd done last time, and um, I managed to I managed to play out, come back, and play out the season, uh, which we, which was good, um, knowing that one day I might need to get it fixed. Got through another whole preseason, first pracky game dislocated again, so I rehabbed it again, thinking that I need to get through this season. Um, first game back, I remember someone fell across my knee, and I was going to miss six weeks with a medial injury. Um, so I made the decision then. It was halfway junior to go get my shoulder reconstructed, um, the opposite one that I had done three years earlier. Um, so I've ready for a pre-season. Um, so I'd sort of been so in that two-year period, I probably played ten or twelve games. Um, so I made it through um, pre-season. I was ready to go for day one pre-season, like third season there, or well, um, got through that whole year. Had some really good footy. Played finals. Mm. Um, so I was sort of thinking, you know, I got rid of that bad luck. Uh, and then uh, by the next year I'd um, round one I think I always managed to do a pre-season to get myself really fit and then round one I was on the wing uh, I went to run and I'd snap my Achilles so don't know um, I still remember I thought someone had thrown something from the crowd and it hit me uh, and I remember coming to the bench and the physios and the doctor. nah I think you've just done a calf and did some tests and they're like nah nah that doesn't look good uh, so I was in having surgery two days later and um so I missed that I was trying to get back and play the last little bit of the season but it was um, it was probably wishful thinking to re-injure it Um, and and that was the end of sort of my career there so I'd spent five years at Frankston and ended up only playing about 44 games in five years um, due to due to injuries but um, I still as much as I'd love to play there but the support and the friends that I had around there and I, I used to love going to training still like You'd work all day back then, and that was, I, whether I was injured or not, I just actually used to like going there and, and working hard. Like, I'd jump on the bike or do something. Like, um, I think there's just, even for my own mental health, it was great to to exercise. Um, and it was something I could still do. And whatever it was, if I was on the row, I did some boxing there or I was on the bike or when I could start running, I just, it was little challenges I could set myself where, you know, I might, Say, so, oh, if I can run two laps tonight without it hurting, mm. um, next time I could run three. And it re- actually really made me uh, revisit and set goals that I could achieve. And that just made me feel good about myself.
0: That's such a great answer, mate. That oh, was such a great like, paraphrase of the whole uh, VFL career, really. Like, you, there's a reason why you are the way you are. And the ability to just keep setting little goals, enjoy the process. How often do we speak about that? I spoke about that for 40 minutes on a webinar last night to different marathoners. Enjoying the journey, enjoying the process. Like um, You can't, it's not always carved out uh, for you. Like you, you just, Blackie had every reason to say, ah, oh, stuff it, I'm, I'm just gonna play local. He continued to go back to the well year in, year out at the uh, elite level and sub-elite level. And enjoying the journey always, always makes life easier. And, and how good's like, people could learn from this and there's a lot of young athletes that might be going through injuries and, and adversity at the moment. And The ability to just enjoy, take it one day at a time, number one, and just don't look too far ahead. Say, so I've got a session at the club tonight, I've got a rehab session, and every set's got a purpose, every rep's got a purpose, every lap's got a purpose, every single meeting has got a purpose. So if we enjoy the process and put a goal in every session, then um, life becomes a lot easier. And also. Incrementally we build up and everything compounds and you definitely got the results when you're on the football field you, you could never stay on the football field long enough because every time you came back you were just as good as you When you, yeah, when you stopped I playing
1: I You just build resilience mm. and I think we said like I had some great old people like old trainers Now I, I, I wouldn't I'd be lying if I said I didn't think about oh, it's all too hard I remember one day I got injured and I walked in the rooms and I put my footy boots in the bin and thought, nah, I just can't do it anymore. And I went and had a shower and I came back and the property steward had grabbed him out of the bin and put him in my locker. So I grabbed my towel out and had my footy boots in the locker. And I'm like, well, if um, if people around here believe that I can get back and play, well, I owe it to them and owe it to myself to do the work, to give myself an opportunity to get back. So um, every, every, people that are listening would be know that rehab can be a oh, shit place sometimes. and can be lonely and that but that's why you just got to set little goals that you can achieve and and they're only goals for yourself don't have to be for other people just little things you can tick off and you can leave that session going you know what Um, and it might it might be four out of five sessions you can give them a tick and say you know what I achieved something out of that you're always not going to be you know 100% 100% of the time but you know more often than not if you're there and you go you know what I feel good about what I did today it's it's one session if you what are you gonna do sit in the couch or you can go there and do something and, and I just made the decision that, no, I'm going to keep moving forward.
0: And that's so good. And it goes, this is why I wanted to get you on. It goes back to intrinsic motivation as well. And we don't do anything for anyone else. And you're on your journey, they're on their journey. And um, it's about being intrinsically motivated and being able to just look at yourself in the mirror and say, well, I've done the work. And also, how am I going to get through to day 12, day 13, day 14, and be a better athlete than I was yesterday, and be a better person than I was yesterday, and resilience-wise, it's 100%. I guess you started to look at coaching in this era, like you would have said, yeah. well, football isn't going to last forever, clearly. Um, a couple of shoulder recos, Achilles rupture operation. We haven't even mentioned the neck yet, but no. I guess you'll get to that in a minute. Yeah. Tell us about your foray into coaching. I think as a leader and a natural captain, it was always going to happen anyway, but take us through where take us through where um, you decided,
1: okay, I'm going to go down this coaching route um, Yeah, so the coaching thing I, I've always had a passion for the game and I th- thought as a young person I understood footy pretty well. Um and like I think like you touched on, being a leader you used to help um some other players, but I used to love going to the footy and just watching. Um, so um and a couple of my really good mates used to always say, oh um you'll be you know you I can see you coaching you in coaching. And then I, I actually thought I'd end up being maybe a better coach than player. I don't know why. Um, maybe it was to the injuries and it was it was probably Brett Lovett at Frankston um when i was injured all the time he started getting me to watch vision so we'd bring players in um off the track and sort of watch their edits and their tapes from their game in the weekend i'd try and coach them through which was weird like i was 25 26 um helping 22 year olds about watching uh watching vision um and trying to help their game get better so always had a passion for it then and then um you know the opportunity after my achilles i'd sort of thought look vfl and and was probably the only time i thought you know i'd give up on that little faint dream of playing afl footy where and i was okay with it i remember we had a sports psychologist come in and at Frankston do some stuff and she sort of said you actually look like you just are really happy about playing footy here and i said yeah well i'm at Frankston Dolphins. Now I want this club to succeed, which I think they used to have a lot of people that still had aspirations to play at the top level. But I was really wanting to Frankston succeed with um, some really good friends that we had there. Um, so I was I was living in Somerville at um, the end of that year, and um, my my local my old local club where my best mate uh, was at Rosebud, um, wanted me to go back and play there. I was living in Somerville, and I just back then made the decision like uh, I live in Somerville, I've been playing cricket there, and I, th- I thought I need to give back. To the community where I was going to live in and probably live for a while, where I still had some really good friends that I'd met through the cricket club and watching them play footy. So I, uh, I made the decision to go and play footy at sort of 27 uh, back there, and for the first time in five years, I managed to play every game of footy um, and and loved it. So um, I, we didn't make we didn't make the make the finals, but just um, training Tuesday Thursday. Still, I still like to think I held those high standards uh, at training, but just the um, the camaraderie with, camaraderie with people there that um, – and some of all for those that don't know, a, junior, a local footy club that hasn't had success for a while. And I, I thought to myself, we can get there and, and – in the ultimate success, I mean, in winning a grand final, they've had plenty of success with people coming out of there being AFL footballers and juniors winning grand finals. But their senior club hasn't won a grand final, I think, for about 35 years now. So um, so I sort of took it upon there. It would be great to be able to go back um, and, and try and do that. Uh, so I managed to play that whole year, um, and then during during probably one of the last games, I got a little, I got a knock, um, and I think it uh, hurt my neck a little bit. I thought and missed the missed the game, um, and then come back and played. And then at the end of the year, um, I was I was appointed uh, a playing coach at um, at Samuel for the following year. So um, and then my neck was a little bit sore, so I um, I went to the chiropractor, which I'd done during footy clubs and anyone that's been around sporting clubs know that you probably just go a, a physio or that and just get you know a bit of treatment and i went to a chiropractor in summerville um there was a, a girl that or a lady that had only been sort of out of her her time for like maybe six months and said can you just treat me i've got really bad headaches um stiff neck and um, she's like no you need to have x-rays i'm not touching i'm like just do it you know i just need some relief and so i in the back of my mind I I probably think I didn't want to have the x-ray because in case something was wrong and then um I I end up saying yeah I'll have it done and I remember I remember her ringing me saying look don't be alarmed something just doesn't look quite right can you go get an MRI and those who've been around sport thinking it probably doesn't sound real good but I I went and did that um and then they rang me and my mum worked for a doctor and they said look we need to get you into a, a specialist ASAP something doesn't look quite right and um, so I followed that up and went and seen um, uh, Graeme Brasner, who was a leading uh, neurosurgeon in Melbourne, Australia, out at the Epworth. So I went and seen him and um, in, had to get more scans. And um, he's like, mate, I can't believe, did all these tests. He goes, mate, I can't believe you're not, uh, you're not, you're not dead or in a wheelchair by now. And I'm like, well, what are you talking about? And he goes, well, you've actually got a hangman fracture. So, um, so you know, if the same as what Christopher Reeve, Oh, good old Superman had. Um, so, yeah, like your, 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 your vertebrae sit on top of a bone that goes through. Um, when you hang yourself uh, or an incident that has really uh, a lot of trauma from the front or the back of your neck, it can break a bone, goes back, severes your spinal cord and you die. Um, that had happened to me, and for some reason, mine is just floating forward. So, and I've been playing footy with it like that. So um, the doctor had sort of – the surgeon gave me um, a decision, said, look, we either – um, we said, well, footy's out, of course. Uh, but we have given an option. One is to pretend that you're wearing a neck brace all the time, so um, so anything in normal life might be difficult to do. Um, or the second option is surgery, and we will repair it. And anyone would say, yes, yeah, surgery, 100% of the time. And then he goes, well I have to warn you during that particular operation, one in 100 die. And I'm like, okay, there. Uh, if you gave me, I actually said to him, if you gave me those stats to win 10 million dollars, I'd probably buy a couple of tickets. Um, so he goes, I'll give you the weekend to think about it. Um, my, my wife, uh, Casey, who, who Rick knows quite well, know her longer than me, I think, um, she actually uh, she was pregnant with our first child at the time. And I remember, I remember jumping in the car on the way home and I, was, I remember just sort of breaking down. And first time I reckon I've ever cried in front of her. And, and I was actually more disappointed I wasn't going to get to play footy again. I know that probably sounds really selfish. Um, but um, so I was sort of 27, 28 and uh, it was it was case that said to me, hey, you're not being a sook, you're having the surgery. I think she must have had someone organized, ready to take my place or something like that. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, she said, so rang up Monday and said, no, nope, we're going in for the surgery. So um, so we made that decision. Um, and I, um, I I still remember going into the hospital, I had to go in the night before. It was the most loneliest night I've ever had. So um, surgery was prepped for the morning, but I had to go and stay the night before by myself, in, in a hospital where you like, thinking, I remember saying, "Oh, um, well, you know, what happens if things go bad? Can I wake up and, you know, paraplegic? And, and the, I remember the specialist saying to me, Graham said, mate, if something goes pear-shaped, you just won't wake up. I'm like, okay, so I actually remember waking up, so I thought I'm all right. Um, and um, that's when I think my, my friends really supported me. Um, they tell me now that they probably lied to me when they came in, like, I was meant to be in hospital for sort of 10 days, flat on my back. It's um, so like obviously major, major surgery. So they fused my C1-2. So everyone that knows the human body, how important uh, that part of your, your, your neck and, and spine is. So that was fused. And... Um, I I remember my first drink I had of water. I nearly choked because my neck and that was so swollen. Um, and then my friends come in, they were so positive for me. They're like, oh mate, you're looking good. And then they tell me like four years later, they're like, mate, we didn't think you'd ever be able to like even jog again. Um, and then my first challenge then was to do a lap of the ward. Uh, so within two days, I was meant to be in the hospital for 10 days. Um, within two days I was up walking around the ward um i managed to get a lap of the ward at the hospital which wasn't very big but it probably took me 45 minutes to walk around uh, i couldn't see my toes my neck and that was so swollen um, and even my, my first little bit of positivity out of that was um going into the surgery i said you might have a halo on or wake up in a neck brace i woke up with it neither um and the doctor just said well you're young you're fit i reckon you can i reckon you'll be right um so there was sort of some positive signs straight away so to not have any of that on so it sort of gave me a bit of belief that everything will be okay and i actually managed to get out of hospital in five days um just said i was I ticked off everything i needed to do the walking and and do that like i wasn't i couldn't move i think rick you probably see me pretty early days in in that um yeah. and then I still, what, I still didn't know the extent mate to be and i'm sorry
0: about that no we i didn't at that time yeah i wasn't around that the footy club at the time at somerville so i I didn't know the extent, which is, it's unbelievable to hear it in the flesh again, Um, craziness. But again, intrinsic goals, small goals, and almost taking some competitive pleasure in enjoying the process, which is... It's, it's just what all high achievers do. Continue, great man. Yeah, no, you're probably right there. It's probably a
1: bit sick in that that you... No, it's uh, good. But you need yeah, to, mate. Yeah, 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 to take pleasure in in, anything. in in doing that. Like, I, I always thought I had a really high pain threshold. So I actually thought if I wasn't hurt and I wasn't improving. Um, but my... This will sound really weird, but my priority was to get back um, to some of where I'd been appointed a playing coach. I had to tell, had to tell the players I couldn't play. Um, so I managed to coach out that year um, and just doing rehab. And I remember the specialist says, look, um, in the end he sort of went, oh, look, if you get it right, you might be able to play a bit of golf long-term and all that sort of stuff. And I'm like, okay, well, it's not much fun. And they gave me six <laughs> weeks off – I remember they gave me six weeks off work and I was back at work in three weeks. Um, yeah, I, I was probably silly being back at work that early because I probably – uh, I remember having to finish work a bit earlier at, at times. Um, but, yeah so, I, um, yeah, so I coached out that year at, at, at Somerville and then um, we just went in different parts. They wanted a the playing coach at that time. Um, but I'd, um, I'd built enough sort of respect around the community and met enough people that I was, I was lucky enough to get involved. I went back to Frankston Dolphins as an assistant coach when Shannon Grant took over. So my mentor, Brett Lovett, had finished up. So it was a whole new era. So I went back there as, a, um, as an assistant coach and we had a really poor season, but I learned so much from someone like Shannon Krantz, straight out of the AFL system. Um, but I was still doing rehab uh, without, with my neck and um, one, of, one of my really close mates, so I'd been through the journey as a player from Stingrays, he's got a really bad back, goes, I'm gonna run a marathon. And, I, and, and myself and another mate laughed at him and I made him a deal, I said, if you can run a marathon, I promise you I'll do it the following year with you. And um, he went and ran a marathon. I'm like, oh no, I'm gonna have to run a marathon. So, um, so uh, myself and um, my two mates um, made a pact that we'd do it. So, uh, one of them, one of my mates, six weeks out, uh, needed an arthroscope on his knee, so he had that done. So we're like three cripples, um, and yeah, we managed to uh, to run a marathon all together. So, and and nearly my one of my greatest pleasures was to be able. to I, I actually sent an email and then rang my surgeon. Uh, So three years after having that surgery, I think it was three or maybe even two years, I actually completed um, the Melbourne Marathon 42Ks. Um, So And then that's where I got really excited because I rang him and he rang me back and he said, "Um, mate, I I can't see why you can't do anything again now. And I'm like, apart from footy, guys, goes, if you really want to because everything's fused and it's as strong as everything, you could actually – apart from mobility sometimes – a bit stiff if I, look, I can't look up and down yeah. too high. Um, he goes, you could play. And I uh, actually spoke to Case and made a conscious decision not to tell anyone yeah. I could because I thought I was about 31. I thought the, the dangle of the character to go back and play footy was yeah. great. So I just actually didn't tell anyone. So none of my mates would ring me and ask me. Yeah. So I didn't tell anyone until about – probably about three years ago that I said I actually could have started playing footy again. But I'd made the decision to uh, to go down the coaching path. But that, that, that marathon was – oh, it was – so um so rewarding like I, I still say to people now if you ever thought oh, i reckon i could do it or uh it, it test you in more ways than what i uh had ever imagined like just the training uh and then on the day the the emotion uh and it wasn't too bad like that day because i ran ran with a couple of mates so i probably ran within ourselves and we ran like a, a four hours and 15 minutes um but with three mates that i've got a great photo of all three of us um afterwards one of them's on an iv and one's getting like a blanket around him and i'm laughing at (laughs) him um so that that's that's great but the competitive juices took over straight away they're like as everyone would know that does any running like people go what'd you run i go oh 4 15 they're like oh yeah yeah my mate's sister ran like four hours and i and i'm like no i can do better than this but um, well, you just you were in a wheelchair. You're almost in a wheelchair yeah. forever. So, but then we'll yeah. tell, tell the listeners. No, nah, so you I went just, back. Yeah, so I actually had, had. So I thought, nah, I've got a good grounding now. I'm um, I, like I remember that first marathon. I followed a program. And someone goes, mate, we have got to do a thirty k, run like like a month before and I'm like mate if I'm running 30k's a month before I'm just gonna run the other 12 and say I've done a marathon but I did it anyway. It's, um, it's but, so funny that's but, <laughs> but, I hope you did a bit I did more than 30k yeah, yeah, yeah I did and then the next year I trained and I was actually going really well and then <coughs> the the day before the marathon I actually flared up my neck and um, I had to pull out. I was in hospital, I had to go to the hospital um, I'd like pinched a nerve and I was actually up to like four o'clock in the morning. I'm like, no, nah, I'm going to go run with a pinched neck just cause pride and that. And I actually just couldn't. I, so I, um, so I, I, didn't make it and I, I felt really bad. So I thought, no, nah, I'm definitely doing it the following year. So the following year, um, I just trained um, with a, with quite a few friends. I was running every Sunday morning. Uh, I just wanted to be- beat my time and then I'd set myself a goal, um, of trying to run three, under three thirty, um, which some of these runners like yourself, Rick, that's probably going for a jog backwards. Um, Not at all, mate. Three thirty is quite a common good goal for very yeah. good runners, mate. So I, um, so I so I did a heap of work, and then on the day um, felt really good, um, and that's when I reckon that was a marathon because it, it was hard. Like three thirty-four. I reckon if I if I trained again, I could, I could break it because I just I'd have to break <laughs> it. But um, that was. Like to take forty five minutes off the last marathon I'd done. Um, it it's like, you know, just over a minute a okay. K. <laughs> um, but that was the day that I oh, like emotional. I actually Rick probably won't remember, I actually bumped into Rick at about the thirty K mark. Yeah, coming I remember Straight mate. back down I to St. Kilda Road. And uh, I was still fly- I was still flying from yourself, but I was still feeling good. Uh, it wasn't until probably about the thirty five K mark, which everyone says. I actually was going up the like the at the tan the melbourne tan and i was thinking to myself oh, i don't know and my whole goal was not to stop um, again and um i'm like i don't know if i can do this and um and just pure coincidence um my wife and three kids will we stay across the road and they were they see me at like the 5k marks eh? flying smiling and yeah and then they see me again um about about sort of 12 15k's and um, just pure coincidence, they were walking to the MCG and I rang past them. And I'm like, oh, I think I'm gonna quit. Uh, I didn't know whether to cry, quit. Um, and it was actually a lady behind me said, nah, don't you dare stop, dad, you gotta keep running. I'm like, and straight away, I just sort of, I was right. And the, and the kids sort of were clapping. And um, yeah, so I, I managed to get through the uh, the other seven Ks. But um, you know, the thing I remember that marathon, so we crossed, crossed the line everything happy and and my son at the time was about three i reckon maybe four and um my wife had forgotten to bring the pram so i had to give him a piggyback ride from the mcg all the way back to st kilda road afterwards so this is but, that is a long way if you're not in melbourne yeah so um but no that was it was unbelievable that that marathon that was when i really um tested emotion um stamina fitness like everything
0: and yeah was, just, stamina and endurance are two different things and that's the thing we talk about physiology a lot. Blackie has pushed the boundaries. He's run a 330, five minutes flat the whole way. Hasn't got an endurance background apart from Aussie rules. Hasn't just training on his own and with a few mates. So he's got his stamina for his speed. It does push the boundaries. It's a lot harder to to run at pace than just run with a couple of mates with a couple of years previous, so It's a beautiful event. And it does, what you've just articulated is what everyone would have gone through a few times, no doubt, if you're endurance runners. At this period in your life, you're moving into some pretty elite level coaching. You're in charge of some of the best footballers in the country, under eighteen level, and the future really of, of Australian yeah. rules football. Take us through getting the Stingrays job. You've come full circle. Captain '97, and was it 2013, 2014? You took the role from Yader, or 20 Yeah,
1: I, I um, that? yeah. So I'd gone back. I spent a year at Frankston, and um. And then got the opportunity to go back. I spoke to a lot of people in the in the industry, and they sort of said, "If you need, if you want to get in the AFL path, um, you need to go back and prove that you can work with those players that are coming into the system. It's your best way." So um, that was the next progression for me, and I went back to the Stingrays as an assistant coach. Um, yeah, for, and I spent four years under Graham Yates, uh, and also was becoming an assistant coach of the Vic Country team as well at the same time. So I was pretty busy do that um with working full-time and then um yada had done 10 years and then the opportunity came up and i'd done uh, i guess i'd done enough to to get the opportunity to coach um a team where yeah where i'd gone i'd captain so i think i was one of I think one of a couple of people in the history of the nab league or tac back then that had actually captained the club and then go back to then coach them um, and it was, it was really different. Like that was where I really took the uh, – probably the, the opportunity to coach and was to make other people better. So you had to put – really I put my own dreams aside in, in a way I think because um, I really was getting so much pleasure in, in seeing young – 18 year olds succeed and then watch them on tv so i i love the look of that like as an assistant coach like the likes of lockie whitfield who was number one who is at gws giants now um and building relationships with those players and and helping them now whether we helped them one percent or we helped them you know from day dot uh to for them to live their opportunity or their dreams and to say that you could have a, a, a either a major or a minor role in that development was something that um, I really thrived on. I thought, nah, that's that's my journey. Um, so yeah, after 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 I got I got that job, um, we, we, we're we very lucky. We've been a pretty successful club. The Stingrays over a long journey, the 20 25 years. So I think the first year I we made a prelim. So my first year, um, uh, um, Jack Loney was uh, was my captain, who's you know, St Kilda uh now and i still speak to jack quite regularly uh just build that relationships and and trust with players um and and our goal not just myself but my other coaches at stingrays we really had that um that mantra of making players better like we're not there for ourselves you've got to be there for the next generation and i think like yada really installed that um as a coaching group so i just followed on that on that path um and then yeah, first two years we made the prelim. Um, and then still that that those who don't know, that damn long stingrays had played so I, I played in the first losing grand final. Um, Yata's last year we lost our fifth grand final. So they'd lost played in five grand finals for five losses. I think every other team in the TAC had won a grand final. So it become a bit of a laughing joke that... Yeah,
0: but also there's been so many draftees and yeah. number ones and top tens and like elite, some of the greatest footballers of all time have come out of this football club. And I guess um, the Stingrays, listeners, you're looking at that Dandenong region and the whole peninsula. So almost the mecca of Australian rules football worldwide, if you're going to yeah. use an American term, like worldwide from Portsea up is a mecca for the Australian yeah, rules game.
1: Yeah. So I think history would show like Sandraham Dragons, Oakley Charging, Dan Long Stingrays, Which and then even, even Geelong, even Geelong mm-hmm. Felton have produced a lot of talent for a lot of years. So um, but, but still sort of flags. Yeah, it sort of become, become all the other regions used to steer you up a bit, like just tongue in cheek, ah, oh, you'd be on top and you'd lose the grand final, just another one and it become that sort of monkey on the shoulders that um, thinking, oh and then I kept thinking, I wonder if we could be the first, be in charge to be the first one. And we had a um a really good team. Uh, when we finished, about two games clear on top, and um we lost the prelim. And I'm like, oh, you know. And um, Jacob Weedering was in that draft. He was pick one. We had some really good players. Um, we had about five or six drafted that year. Um, so where those that don't know or those that do know like the TRC cup program it is really a development program it's about developing young people um so they can get their opportunity to play afl football and then when they go into the draft and onto an afl club we try and bridge that gap so it's not as big but in the end everyone's very competitive when you're in those games um so yeah so and then uh my fourth year there we um we we had a we made a prelim again so i think in the fight in the so we made a semi in the one year, I think it might've been the Weedering anyway, one, we went out in straight sets, it was really disappointing. Um, and then we made a prelim with, we had like 11, 17 year olds play in a prelim, which is a bit unheard of. Um, and then, yeah, the next year. That all goes well though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we're putting in some really good development. Yeah. And then, uh, yeah, 2018, so by now, they sort of say as a coaching journey, the TAC Cup jobs will be anywhere from three to five years. So I was going into my fifth year, as head coach, um, I'd had a couple of interviews at some AFL clubs about getting opportunities, um, and none of them sort of went my way. Um, so I just kept think- thinking, we just got to keep developing players. Best way of doing it if, if there's more Stingray players on AFL list playing really good football, um, you know, will people take notice? Uh, and so that that 2018 season, um, we lost the game. We lost to Oakley Chargers round four uh, by a goal. Um, and um, we didn't lose another game that up to the finals. So coming to the final, so um, feeling a little bit of pressure. I would not never have told them, but um, finished on top. Um, we won our first final really convincingly. And I'm like, oh, dear the dream. Have we got this um, weird chance? And then won our second final and we've come against um, Oakley Chargers. So the only team that beat us in the grand final and... and um, the middle of that year, I, I got the opportunity to um, start my role at Collingwood. So where I was looking after the the Next Generation Academy, which um, the players from the Collingwood Next Gen Zone is actually the Oakley Chargers. So um, so had some of the Oakley Chargers boys, so Isaac Quainer, Will Kelly, and R2, who are all on Collingwood's list now, they were playing at, um, at Oakley. So, um, yeah, so we come into that grand final and it was funny, we did the press conference and everyone, even our talent manager goes, oh, we're the underdogs because Oakley have a lot of private school kids so when they don't play, their team can vary a little bit. And I remember sitting in the press conference, he goes, oh, you know, he's the underdog tag and I remember saying, well, nah, we're, we think we can win it. Like, ah. Oh. As a coach and players, we're out there to win. We think we can win this grand final, and Oakley sort of said the same thing. And I thought, oh, great! You know, like I just thought, I can't say to the, the players that have looked up to me that we've lost one game all year by six points. That oh nah they're a better team. Um, and I honestly did not think we were ever going to lose the grand final. I don't, I don't know why, um, and we we <laughs> we nearly lost. Um, we we're up by about three goals at three quarter time, and. Um, I still remember – I've got a long video at home. Um, uh, it's televised on, on TV, obviously, the game. And at three-quarter time, they interviewed me um, as I was coming off. I'm like, uh, they're like, what are your plans? I'm like, mate, all plans have really gone out the window. It's just the kids have just got to compete, um, have fun. You know, we try and keep goals, We hang on, you know. And the, the commentator's like, oh, well, that's pretty honest. We're waiting for something. Pretty simple. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, when the siren sounded, flat 25 minutes, and we finished um, – Finished yeah, a goal up. So, for the Stingrays to win their first premiership 21 years after uh, their first loss that I played in. So, yeah, 21 years later, become the first coach to uh, to win a premiership at the uh, Dan Long Stingrays. It's, it's
0: phenomenal and it is, it's is, it's just so special. And um, there was a lot of people proud of you that day and proud of the, the region. And you said so many things in that little snippet, but the biggest thing I took out of that, and as any coach, any coach worth his salt. It is never about the coach ever, and as soon as you walked into the coaching, like your coaching shoes, it was never about you again. Which, and that's that's why you are where you are now, because you certainly have never put yourself first. There's no egos; just about getting the job done and developing kids or players or men now, yeah. and it's just about making better human beings, and that usually parlays into better performance on field. Do you remember your pre-game speech?
1: Um, a little bit, yeah. I just remember. Um Somehow during that season, um, I started talking to the players um, before the game, just individually. Like I actually became really relaxed. My first couple of years, um, I was probably really uptight and I I still gained a a bit uptight, up in the box. But before the game, I was really relaxed. Um, That year, um, I had to do something. I I think I had to do an interview before a game and I missed the pre-ground warm-up. So the assistant coaches took it. And after that, Nick Cox, who's now the coach there, goes, oh, mate, why do you actually even come out? Because you let us do it. And I'm like, I don't know. So from that actual day onwards, I actually, when they were doing the pre-game warm-up, I, um, I used to just sit by myself for like five minutes and just ha- – and I've got a photo. Someone – one of the parents took a photo of me grand final day sitting at Icon Park. I was just sitting in the stand by myself while the players were doing their own ground warm-up. There was no one within sort of 10 me- um, metres of myself. And then um, – I think, oh yeah, I just I just go and just tell the players like how much they meant to the program, to each other and how good they could be on the day. Um, I think coaching's changed a lot. Like when I was at young age, it was a lot of rah-rah and wind people up and there was still, I think we probably still do that, but it was, I, I got more out of that year about telling um, individuals how important they were, like whether it be dragging one of those young players, as corny as it sounds, made him look in the mirror in the bathroom and say, mate, are you seeing the same thing that West that I'm seeing? I'm seeing a player that does this, this, this. And if you do that on a day, that'll help your teammates. And um, I think what, what you touched on before, Rick, was I really came up with the idea that if you're asking players to be selfless and put a, play a team role, I think as coaches and people on the outside can see when players aren't doing that, I think the same thing applies for coaching. 100%. Um, So if I'm in there and and just wanting to get to an AFL or to another place um, and you're not authentic, players aren't silly. They can see right through that. Um, So it's about building those relationships. And um, I I can tell a quick story. Like that day... um, Leading into the grand final, I had Sam Fletcher, who's on um, Gold Coast's list now. So, Sam Fletcher in the prelim final hurt his shoulder. Um, and he's Tuesday night, I'm like, uh, he, had, he actually had an injection at three quarter time into his shoulder. His parents were there, so they asked, and he said, yep. And then I took him off anyway because we had the game one. Um, Tuesday night at training, or Monday, the, the physios say to me, I don't think we're. Um, I don't know how Fletch is going to go with this. And I'm like, oh, okay, Tuesday night, he goes, I'm pl- I'm, I need to play. And I'm like, mate, you need to be able to do something. I'll give you the Thursday night. And and my whole beliefs, even – I'd left, yeah, I left players out the previous years for having a cold that couldn't train just because I thought you can't take um, any injured players in. And then um, I said to Fletcher, you're going to have to do some stuff. And he had a few shots on goal and goes, mate, I'll be right Thursday night. And um, I remember – I made him tackle me and and did some stuff. And um, he goes, and I'm like, I wasn't that convincing. He just looked at me in the eye, he goes, mate, I'm playing. And I'm like, I don't know why, I just said, okay. So we rocked up to the game um, and they put, they gave him three injections in his shoulder to, to, to start the game. Um, he'd had 11 touches in the first quarter and had 17 up to half-time where then he'd split his eye open. So at half-time, he was getting stitches in his eye and then while they were there, they gave him another three injections in his shoulder um, and he finished the game with like 25 touches and the best fight, fo- like, he had, he had strapped around his head, a bit of blood at the end of the game coming down all over his and a bit on his jump. And I'm like, mate, you'll look back at that photo and that was just, um, like, so I've seen if players are prepared to do that, mm. um, you know, we are as coaches oh, becomes, to try, and I'd so like to much think that we helped get that out of him too. Like, uh, one of my assistant coaches um, at Stingrays is probably three or four years earlier. Come up with a phrase um, which I use all the time now. Like, if you if you set high standards, people achieve them. But then also, if you set low standards, people also achieve that. So I really tried making it fun, but we re- we really set high standards on on ourselves as coaches and people. Um and his players. All you team sport athletes will pin that one of the
0: show notes, all right, Tommy Sr. Pin that quote. Set high standards, people achieve them. Set low standards, they'll also achieve them. That's sensational. And you can see why Blackie's been in the elite system for over twenty years now. Alright, so if won that
1: that would have been we won't go too deep into you know, Who who was best on ground off the field? Uh, no, they're, they're under 18, oh, so we um, 18. so we went back to the club. It was awesome, <laughs> but we did manage to bump in. I think by the um, so that was a, it was a satellite it was a Saturday morning game, and then I had lunch with them on Sunday, and then by Monday they were watching the Brownlow because they had the draft coming up a few a few weeks later. So I said, boys, you might have to get back to normality here. So, um, oh, but they uh, yeah, no, they had a ball. Oh, we won't go deep in that. That's good. Um,
0: and draftees out of that particular team.
1: Yep, um, oh, we had Sam Fletcher, um, you know Mitch Reardon, uh Matty Cotrell's there. Um, oh, he got me. You got uh, a couple of bottom age that got drafted this year just gone. Um, this year, it was Hayden yeah. Young. Yeah, Hayden Young was in there. So He's that was top an, ten. All, yeah, mm-hmm. so that was not awesome to have like Hayden. And we had Bailey Williams. Yeah, yeah, we had. I know they probably. Like, I can't yeah, imagine in your game they all, especially points. as an underage, they all amalgamated yeah. into, into the in the years. But yeah, Will Hamill. Yeah, so we you, had. We just had a. We had like. An unbelievable, even team. Like, um, I know a lot of coaches say we could have had a lot more players playing AFL footy, but our team that year, like, as coaches, we can probably think we're a bit more important than what we are at times. And that that team, they, they just took ownership of everything. We just, all I had to do was lead them, give them the information, and they just took it and, uh, and ran with it and, and challenged patient. each other. Um, so and when things, when the boats sort of rocked a bit or they were going in a different direction, um, really, no, no. Nah, nah, this is how you get them back online. So they weren't a group that we had to. Maybe when we played 17 of them as a 17-year-old, that all that work done was done mm. then. So it just sort of so kept them back on to track. 2017.
0: Who, who were the main leaders in that in that particular uh, well,
1: team? Well, um, Campbell Hussey was our captain um, from Rosebud, who's now we got to uh, Collingwood VFL. Um, Sam Fletcher was um, also so. one of the leaders. Mitch Reardon, um, but you look at it, they just all took their turns. Whether they were 17, like it was awesome to to have, like you said, a Hayden Young. Um, you'd know the youngs as well, Rick. Uh, and then Lockie, two brothers playing. The, we, had, we had them two as brothers and then we had a, a set of twins playing the game together. And so it was just, it was such a family um, day. Like, and I, I'd actually invite all the parents into the rooms. We just were an open door uh, policy. And then like the funniest thing, when we won the game, like, I ran straight across the ground. The first person I bumped into was travis johnson who was pick one in our 97 draft he jumped the fence i didn't even know he was there he jumped the fence and um come and gave me a come and gave me a hug and then um a couple other mates that played in that 97 losing one were there with their um with their kids and in the rooms afterwards getting photos uh like with me with a premiership so from the stingrays so uh
0: for the listeners in america and that this is the ncaa this is division one ncaa i think NCAA national championship this is how big it is so he's he has coached that he's undersold it because he's modest but he's it's it was an amazing day and I was very proud of him watching that Collingwood Beckins you're already on Collingwood staff tell us about the last year and a half and and two years and now you are a professional coach I believe you've given away your day job you're not working in any plumbing fields anymore are you so tell us about day-to-day life now, and then we'll get into some quick fires. Yeah,
1: no, much different. Obviously, coaching the Stingrays was – I had a full-time job. Um, So to get into – and then coaching Stingrays after hours. So to be given the opportunity, which is really weird to say, being a lifelong Carlton supporter, to go to Collingwood, which is like arch-rifles, and as a kid taught to hate Collingwood, to one day uh, putting their clothes on and going to work. But um, oh, it, it is an unbelievable club. Um, so uh, re- resourceful and um, the, the love and the care that actually all the staff and the players show for each other is something I've never seen uh, and uh, I've learnt so much. And then the players' willingness to want to learn uh, and we're really big there at Collingwood about letting, letting players be themselves. So we don't try and, um, try and mould them into different people. So anyone that comes in the Collingwood Football Club is... You are who you are. So they don't try and change them um, and you just work with them. And, you know, we that first year I was there, Stingrays won the grand final on, on the Saturday and then the following um, Sunday, uh, the following Saturday, we got beaten in the grand final and then we made the um, prelim last year. So, um, yeah, the, oh, the training standards and just the, the the stuff that you have at your side and the amount of coaches that are willing to uh, work um, unbelievable hours and time to um, to help other people achieve the pinnacle in in our sport is is phenomenal and um, you know at the moment we have you know Matty Boyd uh, who played 300 games at the Western Bulldogs is now gone from a development coach to a to a senior coach you know Nathan Buckley arguably one of the best players that's ever played the game Robert Harvey two Brownlow medals on the coaching staff um, Gary Hocking who's Rick's uh, <laughs> favorite player growing up, who is um, I think he probably sits third for the most Brownlow votes in it's, history. It's a who's who, mate. Yeah, so um, for who. myself, going in there, the opportunity to learn again, like it. So just turned forty-one, but so went in there at sort of at, you know at thirty-nine or whatever it is, thinking you've just sort of coached the pinnacle of that underage But then to to learn so many different ways of coaching and and articulating your way to get across to players, or even working. More consistently one-on-one with players, just finding the little minute things that can help them become better, and building relationships with them has been um,
0: and is that awesome. we talk about. Like I've yeah been in the coaching daily game every every year every day for 14 years now, and it's just it is half art, half science, and you're always learning, and you're always learning, but you, the science of it is is always evolving stuff you do you want to have done in 2006 but there's a lot yep. of stuff that you've obviously evolved the last couple of years and but the art of it is where it, you do like we're all on our own journey and you're the way you deliver things might be very different to the way buddha delivers things and, and that's where you've got your gift as well but you've always been a natural leader and that doesn't mm-hmm. just come to people tell me about your coaching philosophy i know it's on the spot later we've done no re- we've done no planning for this either yep. so coaching philosophy in a nutshell um give us it in a minute and and this is from This could be a park footballer playing in Division 16 or or Scott Pendleby.
1: Yeah, I think it's just – obviously, it's just my theory. Other people have the same theory, but I'm really big on relationships. I think if you you can build a relationship with um, an athlete, um, the the person at your fish and chip shop or anywhere it is, um, you can build that relationship. You can nearly challenge them to do anything, um, help them, um, challenge them, help them be hard on them um can hug them and I think yeah I look back in every meaningful way that I've probably helped a player over the time when I look back it wasn't just from kicking a football or throwing ground balls to them it was building that relationship trust respect and not them respecting me but me showing them and earning their respect as well I think it goes both ways uh once you can do that and build a relationship I think oh you know the world's your oyster you can, you can go anywhere and then uh, that's the exciting thing that I find now building a relationship with players and then uh, you've got a blank canvas like you might be the best player at 30 but you can learn something new um, and, and the players that are so willing to want to learn because they want to stay in this game that's been so great for them and you know young people my kids sit there and watch it on the TV and, um, and if you can help these players live that for as long as they can that's Um, a
0: that's a great answer and it's it's as a coach it should be the only answer and the only answer that comes to mind first um different football we we're not going to go into football games and stuff because it's a coach's corner and any coach in any sport can take a lot out of that i think too many too often people get lost in can't see the forest through the trees sometimes and it's quite simple relationships are all that matter and the
1: rest will come i think too like learning as well like i'm still learning all the time like i'm still doing courses the other week we sat we got someone in like that speaks language and how important body language and even words are to talking to different people i I took it home that night and tried it with my uh, nine-year-old daughter probably didn't have the same effect but just yeah different ways of being able to to coach um uh, and and treat people is different so i'm always looking and as a club we're always looking and as an individual i'm always looking at ways to improve myself that can help people and it goes back to
0: that 14 year old blackie always looking to do extra and run and do the extra laps and do the extra reps always the last at training all those kind of things it does go for a life and a lot of our listeners um, would be in exactly the same boat as far as i need to how can i be the best version of myself and audiobooks podcasts learning doing courses um no matter if you're at the elite level or just trying to improve in some um facet of your life it's so spot on mate tell us about your favourite session in preseason and your
1: least favourite. Um, I don't have a least favourite now. Not being a player, when some of those boys tell, are doing. Tell, tell us about the. Tell us about
0: when you were a player. Favorite
1: or uh, least favourite? Uh, the favourite is any time there's something competitive. Like you, you just want to win all the time, or you want to improve. So anytime there's, uh, and I see that now. Kind anytime you put a scoreboard up. So you could be doing a little handball game, or you could be playing any game whatsoever. Like. They could be throwing a ball at a at a, at a dot in the wall. Uh, anytime you put a uh, a prize on it, just that competitiveness that come out in people. You can be playing, you know table tennis, and they want to win. So I, I love sitting back and watching that, and I I still try and join in, and I'm like that with my kids. Now we go out and have a shoot of basketball, and um, I, I still got to try and beat them. Like I, I let them win sometimes, but rubbish. Yeah, you no, let them no, win no, never. No, no <laughs> they, they're going to beat me sooner or later. So um, no. So anytime there's some competitive stuff, just to see. How how different players um, react to losing and react react uh, react to winning is, is really good. Um the least favourite ones are oh, when as a player, when it was hot, like if you get in a forty degree day and you know that you've got a massive session and you just got a like three hours out and the parking
0: makes you do a six point four K time through five by two hours of yeah. game sense. Yeah, that kind of um
1: yeah, that was hard, um, and I guess just just any time it was you were injured and you can't be if you're in rehab and you can't be out there, it's just always challenging. But I I actually do when um, when you asked me to burn this, I sort of self reflected myself a little bit, and I I actually do like a bit of adversity and, and challenges. Like um, maybe you get caught up in life and you don't set yourself challenges all the time. So when a challenge does come your way even if it's something that you don't want, like it might be an injury or something like that. It's a force, I call it a force challenge. You sort of pin your ears back and you go, you know what? Ah, oh, here's something I haven't done for myself for a while. And you sort of go, oh, I can get through this. And, and there's always someone worse. And you, I, I think it's said before, I, I try and smile. And I, I, I get in trouble from my wife all the time because I, I don't say no to too many people. Like if people go, oh, can you come down and help us run this session for the under 12s? Well, you've got to give back to people that, um, that were doing the same thing to me when I was that age. And if you're not prepared to do, to give back, you, you're in the wrong caper, I think. Matty, you're a beautiful man. Tell us about
0: the perfect day in the life of Craig Black.
1: Um, yeah, it's changed, changed now. So um, I was thinking about case reckons I might need an apprentice with all the kids to get into their sport. So now I, I love watching my kids play sport now. So I've got um, Marley, who's, who's um, 11 going on 12. I she's a jet. Uh, she's going all right in sports. She's very competitive. Um, Must and, be in Casey, that one. Yeah, I, no, she's competitive and she thinks she's all right, so I think those two <laughs> go hand in hand that she becomes all right. Um, so she's going on 12, Tilly's 9, um, going on 10, and Tobes just turned 8. So uh, I, I love going and watching them play sport and even the challenges um, the other day, like Tobes said to me, oh, Dad, you know, I want to be better than you at footy, cricket, and, that, and I'm like – I sat back and I'm like, mate, I hope you are, you know. like. Um, but I just love that they – Want to be involved in team sports, um, or like even last Sunday, it's the first time I've done it, so it was sort of weird that they came in today. That I woke up Sunday morning, and said, "Carl, let's go for a little jog." So we just went for four Ks, and we, like we all just went for a four K jog together. Um, it was yeah, Marley, who's my oldest, she just said, oh, "I'll meet you back at home." She just took off and probably beat us by a little bit, but. Um, yeah, just to be able to do that as a family and um, yeah, any time you spend with, not just family, my friends, my close friends and all, not even just my close friends, I treat my friends like my family. Um, so any time you get to spend time with them um, and and I love turning on the TV, seeing players that I've coached, um, you know, playing footy and, and I love that the fact that I can ring probably 90% of them and if they don't answer, they ring back. Um, yeah, so I, I, that's when I know i might have had a little bit of positive positive. and,
0: and the thing time. about Blackie listeners it's not just the ones playing afl he would have coached a couple of hundred different uh there were kids mm-hmm. seven yeah. that are now in their mid-20s early 20s playing local football vfl and every one of them would say the same that they'd, they'd say the same thing about it so there's no it's not just the ones playing AFL. you've had you've had a big big um big impact on so many um adults around now now adults around the peninsula in melbourne so you should really be proud of that Tell me about the future, great man. What's the future entail now? We don't want to go. Oh, we, we, we understand everyone's got ambitions. What's the future of the next 10, 15 years? I
1: um, oh, hopefully keep improving in what I'm doing. Um, and then, you know, whether it's coaching a VFL team or going into the AFL, like in the AFL as a uh, assistant coach. So they're, they're my my probably short-term ambitions at the moment. Um, but just I, I sort of set those as, as goals and then just – keep trying to improve every day. Like um, It's a fortunate thing where I'm working now, I can come in and work with a player to get them better. So, um, and then if they become better players, well, I think I'm doing the right stuff. And um, yeah, that's where hopefully I, I see myself staying in. It might not last forever. So I'm one of those people that, cause it, I've sort of made it to the AFL the last sort of three years. Um, I don't look at it as uh, I've been out and worked, you know, normal jobs, nine to five and, um so however long it lasts i'm just going to enjoy it while it does and when it doesn't when it finishes one day i'll go back and i'll coach local mm. footy community i'll coach the kids or i'll help someone hopefully it's not for a, for a while yet um but yeah that's what, that's what i see.
0: i think mate i think you're very safe i don't think you'll be coaching community football for a long long time to come um We'll finish up there great man i will finish with say which uh we will run a 320 marathon in the next five years so listeners, you've heard of here first he'll go sub 330 in the next five years maybe uh when he gets a bit more time we might, we might train through the actually every month every month's busy for you um, 11 months a year.
1: do you get any time off i actually yeah well at the end of the season i was I was awesome i um well i'll tell you quickly so at christmas time i um myself my wife and the three kids we actually did a trip to america so we got to go together we went and seen some sport went christmas day basketball watched the lakers and the clippers which was the best. And unbelievable and then new year's eve uh, went and watched uh ice hockey in vegas so um so my kids sort of said oh well, where are we going next year and tobes just wants to go back to the to watch some more sports so um yeah no, i get i get some some time off now which is good when um End the footy season in three weeks, that's mandatory over, over Christmas, which is awesome. Really special
0: and you got to do that. And they're the trips, the kids are at the age where they remember it and they. it's really special time. So we'll leave the marathon for a few years, but I really do thank Blackie for coming in. Listeners can um, follow his journey and follow the Magpie's journey, especially you guys on overseas, the Collingwood Magpies might be your team now, but um, he'll, he won't be the last you heard from Blackie. We'll get him on over the next year or so and we'll chuck him on the socials every now and then just to see how he's tracking. I wish you luck for 2020, brother. And um, thanks for coming down.
1: No, I appreciate it. Any time. I'm happy to help. What a great story. What a great interview from Blackie there.
0: Um, thanks, mate, for your time. And listeners, as always, do
1: something today that's going to make you much better tomorrow.